Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Well, once again, good morning and welcome to Community Christian Church. So good to have you here this morning. And you may hear us say that from week to week, uh, but just so you know, when we say it, we mean it. It's good to have you here this morning. So great to see your smiling face. It's such a great time when we can begin our week by being in the house of God. All right, today is the second installment of the Colossians series. And last Sunday, in lesson number one of this series, I spent the majority of our time talking and bragging about Jesus, and rightly so. The Bible says that God has exalted him to the highest place. He's given him a name above every name. That means that there is no one above Jesus, no one even equal to him. Jesus is in a league all by himself, and he's our king and our Lord. And so last Sunday I told you in Colossians 1:15 and 16, the Bible says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So many people want to know about God. So many people desire a relationship with God. And the scripture says, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God the Father. In fact, Jesus said that himself. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, emphasis all, were created by him and for him. How many know that's a very sizable and impressive resume? He's Lord over all the earth. Now, when we talk about Jesus, typically what we do is we focus in on the cross. And the reason the cross is such a big deal is because the grace God revealed to us through the cross is the central idea of Christianity. No cross, no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins, no redemption. No redemption, no heaven. And if there's no heaven, there's only one other destination. And I don't know about you, but hell, or an eternity apart from God, is just not an acceptable option. And so like Paul the Apostle, I passionately preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Because his death, his, his burial and resurrection is the only hope we have. In fact, the book of Titus says it's our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this morning, for just a second, and I mean a hot nanosecond, I want you to set aside the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want you to put that on the side burner. And please don't anyone freak out with me making that kind of a statement. All right, I'm not changing the gospel. The cross is not going away. In fact, the cross is here to stay. But instead of considering and thinking about the death of Jesus right now, what I want you to do is focus in on this, on, and lock into the idea of the verses we just read. Namely this, 
that long before Jesus carried the cross to Calvary, he was calling the shots in eternity. Amen. I'm going to say that again. Some people, they mock me when I say this, that that was worth the price of you getting out of bed and making your way to church. That one statement right there. Long before Jesus carried the cross to Calvary, he was calling the shots in eternity. Unless you forget with God, eternity goes both ways. There's eternity future and there's eternity past. Jesus is the God who was, who is, and is to come. In fact, in the book of Revelations, Revelation 1.8, Jesus identifies himself this way. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That really means he had no beginning and he will have no end. Isaiah 44.6 says it this way. I am the first and I am the last and besides me there is no God. Jesus is not in competition with anyone. There is no other God beside him. And again, Revelation eleven fifteen says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he, Jesus, shall reign forever and ever. So you see, and I mentioned this again last week, this description of Jesus in Colossians is probably the most pro profound and powerful presentation of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. And in the book of Colossians, Paul makes it very clear. Jesus is the Son of God. He expresses and describes him in his divinity, not just his humanity. Yes, he is the Son of Man, but he's also the Son of God. And right at the beginning of this letter, Paul finds it necessary to remind us, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He tells us, the fully devoted followers of Jesus. Don't forget, he's King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords. Okay, that was all review. All I did was reheat up a little bit of soup from last week. All right, let's start today where we left off last Sunday. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. And how many of you were here last Sunday? Thank you. Appreciate it. Your faithfulness, uh, we're just going to continue here along the line and build upon the foundation that we laid last week, which was all about Jesus. All right, I'm going to approach this particular message a little bit differently than I did last week. Last week I read the chapter all the way through, then talked a little bit about a couple of the verses. I'm going to go in a little bit more of an expository uh, style today, which means I'm going to read a few verses, talk about them, read a few more verses, talk some more, and then talk some more, all right? So I'm going to be doing a lot of talking. All right, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. All right, right here in verse 1, 
Paul comes out and tells us that he is not a happy camper. In fact, I don't know many campers who are. He says, the reason I'm struggling, and in such a bad way, is because of the false doctrine and the false teaching that has permeated the Christian church. And not just in Colossae or in Laodicea, but it had worked its way into most local churches, and it was threatening to destroy the Christian faith. And the big problem or the main heresy that Paul the Apostle was having to deal with was similar to second century Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And to put it in terms that we can all understand, Gnosticism involved the combining of ancient religions with Christianity. So instead of just taking Christianity at face value and putting your hope and your trust in what Jesus did for us, there was a mixture of beliefs. There was a lot of opinions and a lot of ideas and a lot of religions all making its way into one called Christianity. Gnosticism also taught that the only way to attain salvation was to lock into secret hidden knowledge. Not anything to do with Christ, not the lordship of Jesus, or not all of the teachings that Jesus uh, made available to us, but knowledge. And there was a problem. Because according to the Gnostics, the average believer, or the average person, just could not know God. That understanding, or having a relationship where you know who God is, that could only be experienced by a small group of people. Only a select group of people could receive this hidden truth. Then the Gnostics also believed that anything done in the body, including outrageous, gross, and even perverted sin, was no big deal. They taught that real life existed in the spirit realm only, not in the physical realm. So that meant you could do anything you wanted to do. You could believe in anything you wanted to believe. It was all in play. And like most bad doctrine or false teaching, there was just enough truth. The devil sprinkled in just enough truth to make it somewhat believable, and many people bought in. They took the bait. And if you put everything I just told you all together, people did whatever they wanted to do. They believed in whatever they wanted to believe in. They had their own opinion, and they thought, what's the use? Why should I even try to understand God? Because you're telling me I'll never be able to figure God out. And so that's why Paul said here, in these opening verses, there was a time when God was mysterious, and he kept things to himself, and the deep truths of God were unknown, but now through Jesus Christ, he has revealed the secrets of the mystery of the kingdom of God. We can know all of these things. And if we were to open our hearts to the Spirit of God, we could receive that kind of revelation. And Paul said, that's why I'm praying for you, and you, and you, because I want you to understand that God has made his truth known and available, and don't let anyone deceive you or mislead you with any other philosophy or truth. All right, let's continue with verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, 
rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, for some reason, whenever I review uh, this passage of Scripture and I look at or I read those four words, rooted and built up, I always think of a tree. My mind immediately goes to a tree. And then when I start to focus in on a tree, uh, I shift over into Psalm 1. It's almost like they're synonymous. Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Blessed is the man or the woman whose delight is in the law of the Lord or the word of God and who meditates on God's word day and night. The benefit of all this, he or she will be like a tree planted by the streams of water. They will yield fruit in season. Their leaves will not wither. And here's the best part. Whatever they do will prosper. How many would like to have a testimony like that? That whatever you do, the decisions you make, the choices, the, you know, everything that you're about, it all prospers, it all succeeds. Well, the scripture says that we can do that. And here's a beautiful picture of spiritual strength and stability. And the key to all of the blessing is being firmly planted. That's what a tree is. A tree's root goes down deep. In fact, Psalm 92 in verse 13 says, those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish or increase in the courts of their gods. In the courts of their God. One more time. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of their God. I'm sorry to say it, but believers today are all over the map. We have not learned the value of being firmly planted. We have a difficult time staying in the same place. We like to move around and try all kinds of new things. You know, one of the blind men that Jesus ministered to and actually healed said it this way, I see men like trees walking. Check it out, trees aren't supposed to walk. Not the healthy ones anyway. God created trees to be planted, unbending, unyielding, immovable. This is how God expects us to live as well. And here Paul gives us an extremely informative and inspirational word picture when he says rooted and built up because that's the correct order. So many people, they want to be built up and never be planted never have any roots anywhere. Paul says, here's the order. Here's what I want you to see. Rooted and built up. You see, when the roots go down deep and the roots are healthy and the roots are solid and vital, that's when they can promote growth and increase to all the rest of the tree, the branches and, and the leaves and the fruit. That's the right order, friend. When we are firmly planted in the faith, when we're firmly planted where God wants us to be, when we're not always moving around, we're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, we're not trying this, we're not trying that, but we have allowed the Holy Spirit to speak to us and we stay in that word until he moves us on, that's when we find ourselves secure. See, it's the tree whose roots go down deep that can survive the raging storm. It might do a little shifting in the wind, but it's not going anywhere. And with the whole rooted and built up process, what's above the surface in plain view and what's below the surface 
hidden from view. It's all moving in the right direction. Amen. And it's contributing to a healthier and more spiritually blessed you with more faith, more trust in God, more peace, more joy, more victory over temptation, and a deeper appreciation for all of the gifts we sometimes take for granted. Memorize those four words. Rooted and built up in him. Just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, not just Savior, but as Lord, continue in that way. All right, next passage. Verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised Jesus from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. How many sins? So he forgave all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spec spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, a few moments ago I told you I wanted you to set the finished work of the cross on the side burner uh, for a second, and now we're going to bring it back. We're going to circle back around to the cross, and here in these verses, Paul tells us precisely why the cross is so important and so crucial to us. Bottom line, the cross is a symbol of death. And who died on the cross? Jesus died. Do you remember why he died? He died for our sins, and he paid the full price for our redemption. Friend, no coupon here, or no discount, no 25% off. Jesus gave his all. He gave his all, and he paid the full price. You see, way back in the Garden of Eden, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, God covered their sin, or he covered their nakedness. Remember that? How did God cover Adam and Eve's nakedness? With animal skins. There's only one way to obtain an animal skin. An innocent animal had to die. So that animal died so that Adam and Eve could live. But lest you forget, that poor animal sacrifice also sustained the entire human race. That one animal, the blood that was shed for that animal, from that animal, sustained all of us. But even though Adam and Eve, they were still physically alive, the Bible tells us that they were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, they were still breathing, but they were far from God. In fact, God and man at that time were worlds apart. And even though God had performed a sacrifice, 
and shed the blood of that, that animal sacrifice and covered the nakedness or the sin of Adam and Eve with the animal skin, still that wasn't enough. Hebrews 10.4 tells us why. Hebrews 10.4 says it is impossible. Say that. It's impossible. One more time. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats or innocent animals to take away or completely remove sin. So even though God had sacrificed an animal in order to make, make atonement or to cover the, the sin of Adam and Eve, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 tells us that wasn't enough. Enter Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. And that's precisely how John the Baptist identified him when he saw Jesus coming to his baptism to start his earthly ministry. Remember the words of John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just covers it, not just conceals it, not just sweeps it under the carpet so nobody could see it. He took away our sin. It was the blood of Jesus, that human, divine blood mixed together that allowed the sacrifice to be made for our sin. You see, on the cross, Jesus did tremendous damage to the devil's cause, and he didn't even know. This is what Paul is addressing here in these verses we just read. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15 through 15. Listen to them in the New Living Translation. Jesus forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us, our death warrant, and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Jesus disarmed spiritual rulers and authorities, and he shamed the devil publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The message says it this way. Jesus stripped and defeated Satan and all his demons, and he marched them naked through the streets. I love that portion. Because that's the way you should see Satan completely stripped of power. He has no authority over you. So, because of Jesus, we are in right standing with God. We have power and authority over sin, and we have the promise of an eternity with God forever and ever. And that's all the ministry of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, there's one more issue that we have to address in this batch of verses, and then we'll move on. Let's reread verse 11, Colossians 2.11. Not only do we have forgiveness of sins, but Paul said, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. All right, we're going to talk about circumcision for just a few minutes. And here's what I want you to remember about circumcision. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Say that. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. One more time. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Circumcision proves that we are in covenant relationship with God. Now, when two people stand at the altar and get married, they enter into a covenant relationship with each other. Down the road after they get married, like say years later, if anyone wanted to question the validity of their marriage, 
What can that couple do to prove that they are in fact married? What, what do they have? A marriage license. If a married couple cannot produce a valid marriage license, it would be virtually impossible to prove that they're married. I mean, loving one another, living together, wearing wedding rings, or even having a baby, these are all elements of marriage, but they certainly don't prove that two people are married. I mean, you can do these things and not be married. And so the only proof that's going to hold up in a court of law is this little piece of paper on file called a marriage license. All right, in the Old Testament, God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham and the entire nation of Israel, and he gave them a sign of the covenant. Anybody remember what that sign was? Circumcision, okay? I gave you the answer. Circumcision was the original sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is big. In fact, Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 and 11 says, God said to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and it shall be a sign of the covenant between us. So God used physical circumcision to set the nation of Israel apart from all other nations of the world. And with physical circumcision, God entered into this relationship and all the men were different as a result of it. That's right, all the men looked different. And keep in mind that in the Old Testament, for obvious reason, reasons, only the men entered into or participated in circumcision, not the women. Now, if anyone in the Old Testament would have questioned whether or not a man was in covenant relationship with God, that could have been easily proven, right? Don't make me spell it out. All right. Well, here we are in the New Testament. And God established a brand new relationship with his people, again using circumcision. That's what Paul's saying here. Only this time, it's not a physical circumcision, it's spiritual. And this time, it wasn't just for the men, it's for everyone, men and women alike. And so today, if you or anyone else were to question your own covenant relationship with God, it could be easily proven with a simple examination of your heart. Because spiritual circumcision or circumcision of the heart will change you from the inside out. Amen. The Old Testament circumcision changed the outside appearance. The New Testament circumcision or circumcision of the heart, it changes the inside of someone's heart. And so now, with spiritual circumcision, we have a passion for God. We have a desire to put the sinful flesh away. We have a desire to live a life worthy of our calling, pleasing to God. See, what you have to keep in mind is that not only did the cross of Jesus Christ destroy the power of sin and all of our sin record and everything that we had done prior to Jesus going to the cross, that's what Paul said, he forgave all of our sins, but the power of the cross also provides for us a spiritual circumcision that gives us power over continued sin. 
So instead of the Gnostics doing whatever they wanted to do, whatever felt good to them, knowing that any, any opinion was in play, we now can adhere to the gospel message and follow after the leading of the Holy Spirit. We can do that because of our spiritual circumcision. So your proof or your license that you're in proper and right relationship with God is a changed heart. Your heart is changed. You look at yourself in years past, you look at yourself now, and you say, wait a minute, God has done some transformation, and I'm different. It's not because of do's and don'ts. That's Old Testament living. It's not just based on your actions. It's based on what's going on in the heart with pure devotion and desire to please God. Do you see the difference? Okay, some of you do. All right, all right. Read it over again. Uh, sometime this week. All right, let's uh, read the last uh, part of the chapter here, the remaining verses, beginning with verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come the reality, however, is found in Christ. Are you getting the, the point here? Are you beginning to see uh, what Paul is trying to establish uh, with chapters 1 and 2? He's pointing us to Jesus. Everything, everything about us, everything about what we believe, it's found in Jesus. The reality, however, is found in Jesus. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Okay, there's a lot here, and it's all good stuff. But my time is almost up, and so what I'd like to do is make a few closing comments, and then we're going to be done. One of the most important themes that Paul addresses here in these closing verses of chapter 2 is his desire for us to be set free from the intimidating power of legalism. And how many of you know believers can be plagued with legalism? Legalism, listen to this definition, legalism is the idea that we can be made more acceptable to God on the basis of what we do. And we're tempted with this all the time, friends. Once we come to Christ and once we understand that it's his grace and his gifting, we get ourselves into this arena where we try to prove our commitment and our spirituality. Let me, let me give you the definition for legalism one more time. It's the idea that we can be made more acceptable to God on the basis of what we do. And so what happens is we get hung up on what we do. And our own actions and the traditions that we have a lot of times 
from guilt-ridden behavior, it replaces genuine and authentic worship to God. So instead of having this open and pure worship of God, we're trying to prove to God how spiritual we are and how committed to his word we, we really are. But it, what happens is we end up focusing in on what we do as opposed to what he has already done. And a great example of this in the scripture is when the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, came to Jesus and they accused him and his disciples of breaking tradition by eating with unclean hands. And it wasn't that their hands were filthy when they grabbed that loaf of bread. It's just that Jesus didn't feel the need to go through the ceremoniously uh, cleansing of his hands. I mean, they, they, they washed their hands 500 times and still they weren't clean. And so Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for that accusation, and he quoted a passive scripture from Isaiah 29, 29, 13. And here's what Jesus said, these people, they honor me with their lips. I mean, it's all the right stuff's coming out of their mouth. But what? Their heart is far from me. Why is their heart so far from me? He says, because in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments or the traditions of men. This is really what legalism is all about. It's people creating their own traditions, their own rules and their own religious regulations, and then insisting that everyone else keep those rules and follow after those traditions. And when that doesn't happen, when another believer breaks your own tradition that you've established, that's when people get upset. That's when people start to make judgments. Wonder what's wrong with everybody else? How come you're not doing this? Now, let's take the Sunday morning worship service, for example. If you've been around Community Christian Church for any length of time, then you know that we've been pretty consistent in the way that we do church. In fact, I would say that we have pretty much followed the same format for the last 24, 25 years. But how many of you know that the way that we plan and conduct a church service is not the only way to do church. The Bible doesn't spell it out for us. The Bible doesn't give us a passage of scripture that tells us this is the precise and perfect way to hold a church service. There are many ways to hold a church service. There's many things that we can do. And so the way that we have chosen to hold a, a, a service may be different than the way someone else does. See, there's no perfect way to have church. What becomes perfect to us is what we get used to and what we like, what we become familiar with and what blesses us and ministers to us. That's what we want to see happen. And so if there's any subtle changes or slight modifications to the order of service, that's when some people can get their shirt in a knot. And they can say, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Pastor Tony's breaking tradition. In fact, through the years, after making some slight changes, I've been accused of backsliding and needing to get saved over again. Why? because we've established some traditions here at our church. And if you've been around here for a while and you like those traditions, you want them to stay. Can I tell you that 
we have a sincere and genuine desire to do everything we can to 100% put a service together that brings glory and honor to our God. That's always been our desire, is to please the Lord. Now, whether you agree with everything we do, the way that we do it or not, you know, we've got people in here uh, on the entire spectrum of Christianity. It is difficult to match everybody's traditions. So what we want to do, what we say is most important, is if we bring glory and honor to God, God shows up. And that's what we need. We need that more than anything else. Because as we sang during the worship time, it's his presence where, that, that brings transformation and change. Nothing else will. You may like something that we do. You may get ministered to by uh, something that we say. But it's ultimately the Holy Spirit that's going to bring that transformation to your heart. And so we desire his presence more than anything else. Scripture says in his presence there's fullness of joy. In his presence... At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So if we made church and the things that we love about church more about God and less about us, then we could fight through some of these pitfalls of legalism that like to come up all the time. And again, go ahead, because that was a good one. It started to worm its way into the local church, the first century church. Paul was having to deal with believers getting all upset and uptight because some of their traditions were being violated. Uh, let's make it more about God. Can we do that? Amen. Okay, I'm going to encourage you. Uh, th this is a wonderful, I mean, over the last couple of weeks, studying uh, through the book of Colossians, reading it, rereading it, doing a little uh, extra research. This is a wonderful book. Uh, in fact, I am so inspired, again, uh, by the whole notion that, you know, Jesus, he's not only my Savior, he's our Lord. I mean, there's no one higher than him. Okay, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the powerful testimony of your word. We thank you for our brother, Paul, who did his best to lead us, not to hurt us or instruct us or to uh, condemn us or judge us. He, he wanted to lead us in the way of the Christian faith that he had received by revelation. That's the way he, you taught it to him. You showed him by the Spirit. You, you, you spoke with him face to face. You gave him a, a deeper understanding than most about the gospel. And Lord, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you as you point us back to Jesus and back to yourself. That's what really is most important, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would continue to draw us closer to you. Continue, Lord, to visit us with your presence and power. We need you desperately today. Lord, in a day and age when people are thinking church is not that important, it doesn't really matter if I make it to church on Sunday. Lord, I thank you that when we come to your house, and when we are firmly planted, we prosper, Lord. We're successful. Everything that we do, Lord. And I thank you for a group of people that continue to hunger for you. Thank you for that circumcision of the heart. Thank you that allows us, Lord God, to put away the sinful desires and run hard after the living God.
I thank you, Lord, again, like others have mentioned, for the example that we saw today on our platform as young people didn't just stand up here with a microphone in their hand. They were worshiping our great God. Teach us, Lord, out of the mouth of babes and children what it means to worship you in all sincerity, not just have the right things to say, not just to honor you with our lips, but to have a heart that is fully devoted to you. I pray, Lord, blessing upon your congregation in these closing moments. Amen. Let's all stand. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.